Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we are here. Welcome to uh, uh, Fan Club. My name is... You're listening. Yeah, yeah. I'm on my own in my flat uh, talking to Nathaniel, who is in his uh, laundry room. And uh, Natalie is watching over us, but she's on mute. Um, so well, the gang's all here. You are listening to Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. Uh, my name is Nick, and this is... Nathaniel Metcalf. Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're, and you're I, listening to Fan Club. What's the fan, first rule of Fan Club, Nick? Tell your friends about Fan Club. And uh, what's the second rule about Fan Club? <laughs> so, please, for the love of God, tell your friends. Tell your friends about Fan Club. Um, tell you what I'm not a fan of is fucking Zoom. Zoom, um, no, it's a pain in the ass trying to... One of the worst fucking formats to fucking communicate with someone with videos... <laughs> You know, you don't have these fucking problems on Star Trek where uh, fucking... <laughs> it's like, you know, like in Star Trek, they talk to each other through screens. And yeah. in Star Wars, they have these really shitty kind of holograms. Yeah. It's kind of the people that built the holograms have built the screens in Star Trek and it's just absolutely fucking awful. Whenever would... I talk... I mean, whenever I talk, you cut out. And, uh... I talk... You cut out. <laughs> hey, that's fan club. And, um, and the, I mean, fucking, I'm, I'm not complaining, but I, well, I am. But um, I'm just like, saying that basically we're broadcasting to you with uh, the best technology that uh, comes free with every computer. Best, best technology that is free. And, the best technology um, that no money can buy. <laughs> that's what I'm getting at. And it's just almost impossible. So, so it's kind of like whenever you start talking that, you sort of fade in and then you stop. And then I start talking. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And I leave more annoyed than when I started in the first place. Hey, but look, I've got my ring off. Oh, well done. How'd you manage that? Uh, just, I uh, just yanked it really hard, but... Uh, <laughs> You can see there's a, like, a line that's cut into it. Fucking hell, yeah. I've, just, I've only just noticed that. Um, so, it was your birthday last week. What? what sort of stuff did you get up to? I, my, the main thing I did on my birthday was this. And apart from that, I didn't really do anything else. I bought myself um, a, a Tesco Taste the Difference Victoria sponge to have. But then I forgot I had it. And I had it like, a, like only like a day later. And it was really hard really hard already and it i did taste a difference i didn't like it i wasn't a fan um, um you know i've well, i got some i got some dvds and things i'd bet it was a you know it's not an ideal birthday i'd say not what dvds idea. what open with the dvds i've watched, watched a couple it's like it's like when um <laughs> whenever anyone goes on holiday and they get back and uh, it's like, tell us about your holiday. And they go, well, we went to Aruba. It was like, fuck it. What what films did you get on the flight? And what, <laughs> what, what, what did you eat? That's all I care about. What films did you watch? And what did you eat? The best thing about travelling is, uh, is just literally, as soon as you get in, as soon as they let you start watching stuff, you know, if you've got like a 10-hour flight, in my head I'm going, right, if everything's under two hours, I can watch five films. This is great. And I won't sleep and I'll ruin the first three days of my holiday with a horrific jet lag. But fuck it. 
Um, uh, keep those beers coming. Keep the beers coming. And I'll just fucking watch, you know, uh, Hobbs. Just stuff that I've got no interest in watching, really. But just think, oh, I should probably watch that. Paddington 2, for instance. Great fucking movie. Watched it on a plane. I'll tell you what um, I got a Blu-ray of Edge of Tomorrow, which I'd never seen. Really, really liked it. Tom which one's Edge of Tomorrow? Tom Cruise Groundhog Day in the future. Oh, with uh, Tony Way. Mm. Exactly, with Tony Way. Yeah, Tony. Uh, uh, Tony Way is uh, uh, our friend that we sort of knew from uh, fan club. He was a uh, fan club from uh, Richard Sandlick's Perfect Movie. And um, he was in an episode of Loaded that we filmed. And I sort of like bump into him every now and then. Um, and he just gets killed over and over and over again in this film. Uh, and I, I messaged him and I said, it was, it was really sad seeing you die that many times. I think it's really good. I think it's a great film. I was really impressed with it. I really like the design of it. I really like uh, the action in it and the way it's filmed. And it really does have that kind of, Saving Private Ryan-y kind of beach uh, warfare yeah. thing. And it works really well with that sort it's of... Really thing. It doesn't feel like um, a bit kind of touchy. It just really works. The action, I think, is great. Well, there was... Um, uh, and also what I really... What, do you know what, what I really liked about it was that Tom Cruise was sort of like uh, stretching himself a little bit and he was playing kind of like a spineless coward. Yeah. And... Uh, and you just go, he never plays, I mean, I'm not a huge fan, but it's just like he never plays characters like that. And it was just like, oh, that's interesting. Um, and if you're going to nick the the format for Groundhog Day, uh, then at least do something different with it. And uh, and it's, tot- it's totally, I just, I really like it. It feels like you're in a computer game, though. Do you know what I mean? Where you're like progressing bit by bit. Um, and I, yeah, I really loved it. Emily Blunt's in it, right? And she's really good in it. Uh, and it's by um, Doug Liman, who did Swingers, right? Yes, yeah, Swingers, and he did Go, and he did the Born, or the first one, Born Identity. So he's come like a really long way yeah. uh, from doing kind of like, uh, Swingers looks like it was kind of, you know, I mean, it's so low budget. It was such a big film in my life when it came out. And then you watch it now. And like, the, you know, like the slow motion that they use. Yes. When they do, um, so when you watch Reservoir Dogs and they do the slow motion thing, it's kind of like, okay, cool, it's slow motion. And Swingers, the slow motion that they use when they're recreating the Reservoir Dog thing is basically like they've just flipped a button on a camcorder. <laughs> and it's just, it's such bad quality, you know. But um, yeah, I really love it. Did you ever see a film called um, 1201? I think it was called 1201. Who's in that? I haven't seen it, I think. I think it had Jonathan Silverman in it, and uh, I think it's called Twelve Oh One. Is it it's basically the eighties? No, it, it, it came out. I think it came out the same year as Groundhog Day, and it's the same oh, plot. Wow. Oh wow! No, I've never seen that. It's a, but it's a thriller, and it's basically at Twelve Oh One he relives the same day over and over again. Uh, Nineteen ninety-three. Have you seen it? Is it called Twelve Oh One, Natalie? Yeah. Um, this is just off the top of my head. I'm pretty good like that. Um, so same year as Groundhog Day, 1993, obvs. Uh, the best film to come out that year? Hmm. Probably. It's, it's probably the one that holds up best. I mean, I love Jurassic Park, but, um, 
but you know the more you watch it the more flaws you see in it and the and you know the more it looks like well they've built 20 feet of track and they've got three cars do you know what I mean it's like you can see you can see that they've spent everything on the dinosaurs it's <laughs> Jurassic Park just feels like a very small film when you watch it back now um, not criticising it. It's a big film for me when it came out. Like, I saw it once and I really liked it, but I didn't... I then probably didn't watch it again for years. It wasn't, like, a thing I saw multiple times. I like it... Uh, almost, I like it a lot better now, I think. It came out around birthday season, so I think I saw it about three or four times at the cinema because um, uh, people kept, like, having birthday parties where we went to see Jurassic Park. But I was... Um, that was the year... OK, that was the year... I went to a family on a family holiday to Florida. So I was about 12 and it had just come out. And our tour guide was just like, you know, fucking losing his mind over it. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just, like, and I was just like, cause the adverts, the, the adverts made it, um, uh, look like, I thought it was basically, it was like a science film. Right. I, and when I realized that there were actual, I think like on Blue Peter or something, when they actually started showing clips of the T-Rex attack, she's like, oh, I've completely misread what this film is. <laughs> and then, I, yeah, I, I thought it was, yeah, I, 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 obviously I loved it. But Groundhog Day, I think, is a film that... Obviously, because Jurassic Park is so reliant on a budget and technology, uh, it obviously has aged, you know, in a way that Groundhog Day hasn't. Groundhog Day is like a Frank Capra film. It's timeless. Um, Jurassic Park came up in uh, some of the conversation I read around another film I saw this week, which I didn't enjoy at all, which was Real Steel. Have you seen Real Steel with Hugh Jackman? Hugh Jackman. Uh, what's that, the Rock'em Sock'em Robot thing? Yeah. Oh, it's, ter- it's dreadful. Dreadful. Yeah, well, look, who directed that? Uh, it's the guy who did Night at the Museum, but I can't remember his name. Oh, uh, is, it, uh, is it Barry Levinson? No, not Barry Levinson. It's something like that, though. It is a name like that. Uh, Sean Levy. Yeah, Natalie's put Sean it up. Like, yeah, sorry, Levinson. I'm not sorry. It's amazing that I managed to... Man- amazing that I managed, no, <laughs> managed to pull Barry Levinson out my ass. What did Barry Levinson direct? He directed for The Flintstones from 1994. He did Wang Dog. Did he do The Flintstones? Did he do the Flintstones? Did he do the Flintstones? He did. What did he do? Did he do? Um, did he do Explorers? Is that Barry Levinson? I don't know. Or did he do? He no. did a bunch. Of, oh, Dying Up. Okay. Oh well. Um, well, I mean, we could talk about Barry Levinson all day long. Um, but yeah, anyway, so there's this film called Twelve O One. Uh, the writers and producers of 1201 believe their work was stolen by Groundhog Day. It's unlikely uh, it came out exactly the same year, though. You've yeah, got was it Jonathan... It was Jonathan Silverman, the star, along with Helen Slater. Is it Slater or Slatter? I think Slater. An early role for Jeremy Piven and okay. Martin Landau. Um, I mean, it's, the, it's it's not exactly the same film because it's a thriller, but... Um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically, it's the same plot. Brian Levant, oh, hang on a minute. Brian Levant directed The Flintstones. 
I was thinking that. I was thinking, I think of Barry Levinson as being a much classier director, which he is. Barry Levinson directed Diner, and Sean Levy directed fucking Night at the Museum. Wow. I mean, I get mixed up between the guy that directed um, uh, The Italian Job remake and the guy that directed uh, the Fantastic Four movies. One's Josh... Oh, no, you mean Peyton Reed, is it? Is that his no. name? Is it not? No. I mean, this is... I mean, we're not literally oh, talking about I, anything... I, I, we, this is, we don't know anything about anything that we're talking about today. <laughs> and it's like, and Natalie, uh, F. Gary Gray directed The Italian Job. And then was it Tim Story? Yes, it was Tim Story. Exactly. Directed the Fantastic Four, uh, the, the mid-2000s Fantastic Four. You nailed it, Nick. Well done. You've pulled it back. You've pulled it out of the bag. Why do, why do I get F. Gary Gray mixed up with Tim Story? They're completely different, different directors. They haven't even, they don't even cross over the genre. <laughs> anyway, um, right, so yeah, uh, so. Real steel. Is a piece Real of steel. Piece of shit. Terrible. I wanted to, <laughs> I kind of got intrigued by it because it's like, it's written by, it's based on a story anyway by Richard Matheson who did like, um, uh, uh, I Am Legend. He wrote I Am Legend. Incredible Shrinking Man and all that stuff. And he wrote all yeah. that in the 60s. And this was based on a story, one of his stories, but you watch it and you go, I mean, I bet it was nothing like this. It's obviously been made on the, off the back of Transformers, I think. Sure. Or they knew that they were making Transformers and they went, what have we got that's close? Is it? I thought it was basically the Rock'em Sock'em Robot movie. And it was like, yeah, like Transformers, I suppose, like it's a toy, but also sort of like Pirates of the Caribbean, like they've got a concept something and they're just making the thing. Essentially what but, they're trying I mean, to do is Rocky. They're trying to do like a boxing movie, which is sort of with a sort of emotional hook, but with giant robots that fight instead of humans. They're boxing robots, essentially. Yeah, it sounds shit. I mean, it really is. It? I mean, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound shit, but, I, but nothing... I mean, I, I, I'd forgotten it existed until you just mentioned it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, end of today. That's also called uh, "Live, Die, Repeat," and it's all also called "All You Need Is Kill," isn't it? And they changed the name. And I think "Live, Die, Repeat" was like the tagline, but yeah. they were calling it that for a bit. It's yeah. just it's got, got a really confusing title. The comic book is "All You Need Is Kill," yeah. and they were like, "We'll we'll we'll base it on the comic book All You Need Is Kill,' but we'll call it." Um, uh, yeah. Right. Live, die, repeat, and then uh, it was just like, well, we don't. Then they just started using that as kind of like the little tagline, and then it's called what's it called? Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, it's called Edge mean, of Tomorrow. But on the box, Live, Die, Repeat is much bigger than anything else on it. And then in small writing, it's got Edge of Tomorrow. It's like uh, it's like cliffhanger, and what, and it, the big the big thing on the box of cliffhanger it says, "Hang on." <laughs> and you go, <laughs> Well, is it called Hang On or is it called Cliffhanger? It's obviously called Cliffhanger. Um, the, the greatest Finnish director of all time, Rennie Harlan. Uh, I, had to, I, had to, I had to look up uh, stuff about Finland for my uh, for my song that I wrote. That was uh, great. I don't know if any people have seen this, but you did a thing called the Isolation Song Contest, which is mm. people all stuck in their rooms, various comedians, all comedians, right? 
and no 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 there was comedians there was musicians and then there were drag artists and it was just basically uh tom uh taylor who i've never met in real life i don't think um he sort of like got in contact with me and he said do you want to write a a song for this sort of like fake eurovision song contest thing and i was like uh yeah sure i just thought it would be like me and a bunch of open mic comedians that would do it you know and then all of a sudden it was like oh um it's got the guy from the Divine Comedy's doing yeah. it. I was like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> and then, and so then it was just like, oh. So I just panicked and I spent like five days, like, like it took, I, I thought, I'll write and record the song on Monday and I'll do the video on Tuesday. And that, but the song went on and on until like halfway through Wednesday. And I started filming, oh, it just went on and on. And it took like a whole five days to do it. And then it got to like um, like halfway through Friday. And uh, and then I had to send it. And then it took like two hours to upload and to set. It was just took, never, never, ever agree to do anything without reading the small print, right? Especially if it's for charity, all right? Um, I, hey, well, I mean, I think it's great. I was really impressed. I think- I think it's one of the best songs I've ever written. <laughs> I loved it. Um, uh, my friend, oh, our former fan club um, member uh, Joe DeCosta uh, did all the music, did the music for it. So I sort of like sang. I worked out like on my guitar, and it's just because I I work with musicians, so I sort of like I'll write. Um, the tune and the lyrics and i'll sort of like i'll I'll sort of work out chords normally uh and then i'll go in and then i'll work with much better musicians to sort of get it get it down as a as an album track and um and this was just sort of like everything is sort of like over zoom or through uh whatsapp on your phone so you just sort of like communicate it just really sort of like when you when you need to work with other people and you need to sort of like and you need you need people's help to do stuff, it, it I, I it feels like you're kind of like um, uh, obviously we're all isolated, but it feels like you're literally trying to get information from one submarine to another at the bottom of the ocean, where you're literally just kind of like I've got this idea for a song. Like what? Like how we're talking now? It's so sort of like broken up in between us, which is why I'm sort of like uh, got, why I've got verbal diarrhea is because uh, uh, um, I, 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 I'm, I'm worried that if I stop talking, the whole show will collapse. Well, see, that's what's just happened. Then you chipped in, and I, I could hear. I'm quiet. It's, and I can see you laughing, but I can't hear you laughing. Which is so. I'm just assuring the listeners at home, Nat's enjoying himself. Um, <laughs> enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. Um, all I heard was there was you going enjoying it. <laughs> but I heard your. I saw your mouth go. I'm enjoying it. But anyway, so you're trying to get like information from one thing to the other. So basically, I sit in my little room and I got my iPod out, uh, my iPad out and I did garage band on my iPad worked out what the tune was and then Joe sort of like did it and then and then I go that chord isn't right and then I would sing and Joe is like the most Joe DeCosta he's like the most amazing musician he can play like you know 10 instruments uh 12 instruments 
20 instruments uh and he just he's but he's incredible and uh, and so you basically just say um I can sing at him over the internet and he'll work out the chord and then it'll be like, yeah, like that. And so he did sort of like all of the, the backing tracks and stuff and then it went back and forth. And then I edited it all on uh, my computer and then he sort of like did a bit of a sound mix on it. Uh, and then um, I, I filmed the video on my phone uh, where you're basically, you've recorded the song and you're playing it off your laptop and then you're sort of like miming into your phone. I bought a little tripod for my phone. Um, and I've never made a music video before. Um, like by, you know, on my phone by myself. And I just used GarageBand for the music. And I used um, uh, iMovie to do the editing. And then um, uh, Katie Pritchard, who was in my show, I think he stinks, she helped me edit because she's a musical comedian and uh she's just you know she's like cranks out like a song with a music video a week if if not more and so you just like you know i think what i, th I think it was for charity and it's for three really good causes so if you're listening to it and it's relevant i think you can vote until the end of the month uh it was called the isolation song contest and it was raising i think the aim was to raise like 20 grand or maybe it was five grand or something yeah uh, for Refuge. It was for refuge. It was uh, for um, uh, the Trussell Trust, uh, and what was what was the other one? It was it's a homeless charity. Shelter was it? No, not shelter. Uh, it will come to me. It won't come to me because I'm panicking. But anyway, so it's for like three. It's for three like amazing charities, and we ended up. I think it it uh, refuge. I've said that. That was the first one I said. Um, uh, I mean, she's type crisis. That was it. It's not, not a homeless charity. Crisis. Um, yeah. So um, yeah. So I think that like the aim was kind of like fairly realistic, but also just like, well, I'm not sure how many people will listen. They ended up making twenty six grand on the night. I think, it's, I think it's really good, and I'm really moaning at the minute about broadcast TV. And when you see like TV that's broadcast, like like. Um, Sunday brunch or something and it's like that's done over Zoom and you think I mean this is like, this isn't uh, TV quality, this isn't really broadcast quality and then you see something that's been made for the internet, for YouTube essentially and the production values of people just sat at home are so much higher and I found it all really impressive and not just your one but what everyone had sort of pulled together in a week and just done in their houses and I just thought it was really great, it was all really funny and like, especially for like a charity thing, it sort of flew by. It's like it's on for about an hour, I think. All it's time. an hour and ten minutes, yeah. Yeah, it's really great. But I mean, and they got like loads of people involved, like Graham Norton got involved, and obviously uh, Sally Phillips introduced me, and that sort of like, oh, that's you know, that's incredible. Like, I mean, just who grew up watching Sally Phillips, and she's sort of she's retweeting me, and then it's just kind of like, oh, fucking hell, it's huge, and um. Yeah, it just made it just made loads of money. It took me five days to do it, and then you look at the quality of everyone else's stuff, and you just think, "Fucking hell!" I mean, everyone just pulled it all together, and like you say, it's broadcast quality. I was telling you just before we started uh, recording that I was watching um, the Seth Meyers uh, late night show online, and it was him interviewing Ricky Gervais, and the interview is this quality that we're doing right now. 
right. it's literally him talking and then Ricky Gervais talking and then Seth Meyers talking over Ricky Gervais by accident and then stopping and then Ricky Gervais like telling a joke but you can't hear the joke and then he has to repeat the joke to each it's just like it's and, and that is that's broadcast I mean that is the quality of broadcasting at the moment which is a point where we are we are the height of broadcasting we are the most professional broadcasters out there now by default well, we're, e we're e equal exactly. we're equally we're as professional as anyone else <laughs> you know but that's the whole thing about about this situation that we're in is it's, it's a huge leveler right yeah. where it's just kind of like you know um you know, you see Jimmy Fallon in his uh, living room with his kids in the garden and stuff, and it's kind of you go, "This is this is this is this is terrible." We can, we're as good as that. We're terrible too. You know? <laughs> but the but the other thing is, you know, um, I'm I'm really glad that I did I did the um, uh, I did the challenge. You know, I did I did the I did the music video. I churned it out in a week. You know, I'm, I think the song is good. I think that I could have recorded my vocals better for the second half of the song, but I was teaching myself how to, how to, or relearning how to do stuff that I would normally work with someone else on. And, um, uh, and, and now it's kind of like, I've got a setup in my house where I've got a microphone and I've got like my music hall set up and I'm using GarageBand a lot more. And I've learned how to use iMovies and, uh, I've learned, you know, which is it like free editing software that you get with your computer. And I've learned um, how to use my camera and a tripod and kind of like just, you know. Um, uh, and so basically I'm going to come out of lockdown with like at least two new skills that I didn't have before. And because obviously I write uh, and perform music and I have albums and stuff like that it's kind of like a way that um, I can still talk to Andy, my producer, over the internet, but it's just a way where I can have more control over my creative output and what I do. You know, in a way, I mean, I've always preferred working in a music studio and filming TV to live stand-up because you're in more control over it. You know, there's so many variables when you do live stuff that you kind of like, I always just feel like I've dodged a bullet as opposed to I've done something that's really good. Um, and when you sit in a, in a music studio and you release it when you're happy rather than, you know, you've been caught off guard and you've just got to throw it out there then, and you can tweak it as, as long as you like, then, um, then, you know, I feel like I've got more control over over one of my assets that I, uh, as a performer. And also if I can start making music videos and releasing stuff, I can, I just think that, it, it, yeah, it just gives you, it gives me a lot more control over what I do. And I just, so those are my positives about um, lockdown. And also just sort of like... Do you think you will do more at home now? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it all morning. To be honest, I thought we were recording at 12, but we were recording at 2. So I've been at my laptop all morning uh, recording vocals and, and rewriting song lyrics and stuff. Um, and I, I think that everything, I think there's, because uh, we're all in lockdown, there are so many, everyone, I think there was a big rush at the beginning for everyone to start just cranking out content. Okay. And I think that, I think that really, you want to do one good thing every few weeks. 
but you don't have to crank it out. I've been working on this album for two years, you know, and I just think if I release it during lockdown, it will just get lost. It'll be like, what did you do Tuesday morning? Listen to an album. What's next? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's two years worth of work. It, I, I spent an entire week on that isolation song thing and that lasted like a blip and then you move on. Do you know what I mean? So I think that I, but what I could do is I could release like a couple of singles off of the album as we're going and make some videos for it as, as we're going. But I don't think, I think that when we're out and we want to celebrate, that's when you release the album. Mm-hmm. when it's kind of like you, people can kind of like focus in on it without like there being like a man and also, also it makes sense that you will do that right it makes sense that when you have the album out that you might as well release uh videos and things because that's how people listen to music now on youtube right absolutely when i did my first album we did it off the back of uh the blaps that i did for channel four so i had a couple of music videos for it and um and we released them, but I didn't do anything for my second album. And um, and it's because you're kind of at the hands of, uh, you know, like um, like like the TV channels. You sort of like, oh, can you give me some money so that I can make a music video? But in actual fact, you don't need any of that. Mm. And my video is as good as I could have made it in terms of, it was my first attempt and I was filming it. I mean, I'm aware I'm talking about myself, but I'm also trying to sort of like um, uh, get it in people's heads that, you know, whoever's listening to the show, you've got the technology in your fucking pocket to do something that's actually pretty good, you know? I think that's the main I took away from that show was that these guys doing stuff on their iPhones that are actually now better than what's being broadcast on TV. (laughs) The quality of it was great. Well, I just think that live stuff is um, is easy, isn't it? It, it? it happens and then it passes and then you move, and it's not timeless stuff. But what's very apparent is that live stuff is fucking awful when it's just you on your own trying to create, uh, a, a, you know, late night television in in your living room with your kids running around. I think that it's just I don't. It's not something. That, but pre-recorded stuff that's been edited and that's been put together. I think that sort of works. Um, but yeah, I mean, the video is as good as I could have made it filming by myself like this. And then, you know, all you need is one other, you know, one or two other people to sort of like hold the camera for you and sort of like, and so you can direct something and then you can, you can make films on your, on your phone. You know, I know that's something that people have been doing for years, but, it always it's the same with comedy you always feel like that's what other people do yes yeah i've got nothing i've got nothing to contribute you know but in actual fact you might have something to contribute and you might you know um and the, and the technology is that if you if you don't already own it it's affordable you know but you probably own most of the things that you need in order to do it i had everything i needed to record a song uh, over the internet with a friend uh, and uh, and edit it and mix it and uh, do a video and edit that and send I had everything I needed right here without buying anything new you know the only thing I bought was I bought some radox because uh, uh, I needed something that looked like snow <laughs> and that's that's it do you know what I mean um, uh, so uh, live die repeat 
that was... Uh, Which man, Rene Harlan was uh, a Finnish director. That's how he got onto that. I was thinking of Aki. Oh, He's another Finnish director. I was expecting a rhyme coming from uh, from about him in the song, but didn't get one. Who? Aki Karasmaki. Yeah, I've got a box set upstairs. I've got a box set upstairs. This very uh, Pamela Anderson has got Finnish an ancestry, so I was going to have a picture of Pamela Anderson in it, but um, uh, the ones I've got aren't broadcastable. <laughs> so um, it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was fun. But Lift, I repeat, is really good. Twelve oh one is a really interesting film that you should um, that you should you should have a look at. Yeah, and the other one I watched. I watched Oblivion recently. Oh, another yeah. Tom Cruise yeah. one. Yeah. That's shit. I've seen <laughs> I, Again, watching Live, Die, Repeat, I was really struck by how much I love Tom Cruise. I had a real, like, he's so great. He's such a movie star that he's kind of gone all out to do these kind of mad stunts and things. It's crazy that he just kind of... That's what he is. Well, yeah. he's, he's, he's basically his Jackie Chan, yeah. isn't he? Or yeah. he's... Or he's uh, Buster Keaton. He's kind of like he's like that. I don't, I don't, I don't really. I don't know how I feel about Tom Cruise really. But um, but I yeah, I the making of so Live Die Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow, and it was um, it was a director saying like uh, apparently it was like offered to Brad Pitt first and he turned it down, and then I, I just in my head I can't imagine Tom Cruise saying Brad Pitt turned it down. I'll do it. I would have thought he'd be like stay away from that, but he got it and went oh, we could probably do loads with this idea. And apparently there was nothing in the original script about him, like, he had him, like, dying and coming back. But it was Tom Cruise's idea to go, that's a really fun idea. Like, I can get killed in loads of different ways, and that's fun. And you go, that's exactly why it works. So he sort of brings all that in. He gets the concepts that someone else has turned down and gone, oh, there's a better film in this. Let's make the better film. And I guess yeah, he's... But he's a movie maker. Do you know what I mean? So he's not just—he's not just in films. He is taking films from the ground up and creating them. He's not directing, but he's—but he picks the director and he's got input into the scripts and everything like that. You know, he's great. Um, we should play a song. Yes. And then we will do fan mail and have a guest. We will. And your song. Our first guest. We've got two guests, haven't we? You bet. So what's my song? Long Way to Go, Alice Cooper. Right. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. And we are back in the studio. We're back at Camp COVID. Um, my name is Nick. Oh, we've done all this. Um, we're joined in... We're, we're not joined in the studio. We're joined online. Uh, via Zoom uh, by comedian Pope Lonergan and um, uh, uh, hello 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 how are um, you doing yeah not too bad yeah I've uh, uh, just trying to trying to keep sane trying to keep busy I'm, I'm bunking down with my uh, my parents and my dad's becoming like overly quite overly fastidious like the other day I couldn't use the sink because he was washing his ruler so uh, he's uh, he, he's kind of getting on my nerves a little bit, and uh, but yeah, other than that, not too yeah, not too bad. What, what have you been measuring that you need to wash it? That's what you got to ask yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I did. I didn't delve too deeply. I didn't want to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Where are you? Um, Where about well, in the country? 
Well, oh, Essex. So, uh, yeah, South, uh, Southend on Sea in Essex. Oh, lovely. Um, I love yeah, I That's love good. Southend as well, yeah. And, uh, oh, I love Southend. Uh, <laughs> do you know uh, Cunt and the Gang? Yes, yes, of course. I don't know that. I know who they are, but I don't actually know them personally. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, he's from Southend. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. That's high art, that is. <laughs> the gang. Um, uh, and you've done the classic Zoom thing of uh, making sure that you sat in front of a bookcase full of books. I, I know. I ha it's just a small... <laughs> it's, this is my bedroom. The bedroom's a lot of books in there. There's not really many angles I can do without the books in the well, background. Sure. I can see on your bookshelf you've got a Dostoevsky book, which yeah. I can't on. Ah, the thing though like i uh, the other day when i did an interview for british comedy guy i actually sent cy hawkins a photo of uh, my books to include in the article uh but i'm, I'm shameless of it i'm brazen I, I like to people to think i'm well read so there we go artfully placed dostoevsky book there so yes you've got you're, you're up to what are you up to during the lockdown what have you got going on uh, I've been doing loads of uh, kind of uh, these streams and stuff for that, <laughs> doing a lot of work with uh, Next Up, which has been a, a lot of fun. I've actually, I got approached by, uh, I can't name, one of the big publishing houses to write a book proposal for a funny book about elderly care. Uh, my experiences with working in elderly care. And it was like that they kind of approached me uh, at, the, at the beginning of the year, but um, at the beginning of last year, but I never got around to doing it. So now I'm finally knuckling down and getting that proposal. No excuse now. No excuse to get it. Exactly. Down. Exactly. You've done loads of gigs in like care homes and things, right? As well. Yeah, I started, the, I started the care home tour. It's like comedy specifically tailored for people with dementia. So it's quite a, a visual and kinesthetic and interactive comedy rather than relying too much on like linguistic ledger domain and, and wordplay and all that kind of shit. And it's, uh, yeah, with the, the, it's, it's the one we did recently, it was me, Jos Norris, uh, Luke Rollison and Nathan Lang. And Jos Norris came up with this kind of wonderful idea of having a box, uh, a box to put in our favourite, our most precious memories. But every time he passed it round, these elders uh, were putting in like their actual house keys. So it looked <laughs> like we looked like we just used it as an opportunity to gouge the elderly. <laughs> it's like, it's, uh, but yeah, no, it's been it's really nice. These gigs It's very un, very unusual. You have to learn to acclimate to uh, uh, different concentration levels and people, you know, have, uh, frontal lobe impairment and this stuff. It's, it's a bit of a challenge, but it's a rewarding challenge. Yeah, I bet. That's incredible. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, thanks, mate. Yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been lovely. That's like, such a learning curve. Like, and we said rather than performing at them, because that can be jarring and we don't want to kind of uh, impose ourselves on these people... Uh, who are already living in a kind of drunken, disorientating world. We we perform with them. And so what we say is like, we're an improv troupe where three quarters of us have dementia. And uh, yeah, it works really, I mean, it works really well when they kind of uh, uh, create a sort of unity against us. So it's like they create like a, um, a, a panel of, uh, of critics who who can sort of slag off our performance and it creates and Waldorf from the yeah. show. Exactly, yeah. And that works really well. So when at the top of the show I always say to them, uh, you can 
decide how much money you're going to knock off our fee, uh, they, they, they take that um, opportunity with relish. <laughs> We're usually down, down to zero, uh, uh, zero pounds for our fee by the end. You've got their house pizza in the end, then. It's exactly. Like, it just goes to show that even if you do have dementia, you can still be a cunt. Exactly, <laughs> I know. I know, I know, yeah. <laughs> it's like very hard to yeah. think about that. That it never, <laughs> never sure. goes away. Never goes away. Background, wasn't it? Before before doing comedy, you worked in like dementia care and stuff, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I worked. Yeah, I worked in elderly care <laughs> for, for for eight and a half years. I, I really, I really, I really loved it. Like I, I actually um, recently did a podcast. Uh, doing what everyone's doing, just bunging out a podcast, seeing if it sticks, and. Um, on, at the end, so I was supposed to play this during Mark uh, Watson's uh, Watson of Fond, but unfortunately they ran out of time with it. Uh, it's a recording of uh, a conversation used with permission uh, from her family and stuff of a woman I was really, really close to. She's 98 years old, and it's this rumination of, of us talking about how we'd like to be disposed of when we die. And this this really lovely exchange with this woman, and sadly, she actually... Uh, died uh, not that long before lockdown. I couldn't go to a funeral because because of lockdown and stuff. So it's uh, yeah, it's sort of a little homage to her. It's uh, it's quite beautiful. So if you get a chance to listen to that, uh, please do. So imagine having a twenty four hour show and still running out of time. I know. <laughs> Fuck you, Mark Watson. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> You know, and, he, and mine was like a noble little uh, uh, thing that I was trying to provide, but Watson decided to... Exactly. In the bin, mate. It's, been, it's been said before, but what an arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, that's great. So you've got this charity gig on Friday. Yeah, it's a Friday uh, for next up at 9pm, uh, doing my show, Pope's Addiction Clinic. Which I think you you did before, Nick. Um, but I, wasn't I did there. it, but you weren't there. No, yeah, you I weren't there. Yeah, I I, uh, I I couldn't make it long in the end, so I was working. But they, um, yeah, Pope's Diction Clinic is basically like comedy AA, uh, where comedians are there, sort of say uh, talking about the most uh, depraved, the most reckless, the most uh, drug bingey episodes in their life uh, for your viewing pleasure. And uh, there'll be uh, Steve Hughes. Um, uh, uh, Vittoria Angelone, I think that's how you pronounce the name, Davina Bentley, uh, Natalie Palamides, and oh shit, who else? Oh, and uh, Carl Donnelly, the great Carl Donnelly. So, yeah, that'll be the the, the, the people who are taking part. Really. Oh, and, and Harriet Dyer, the amazing Harriet Dyer as well, yeah. So, yeah, should be fun. We're raising money for charity uh, for Angel Comedy, who who are in sort of a financially precarious moment, and uh, they, uh, I mean, for me, they've been a, a, an integral part of my growth as a comedian, and for a lot of comedians, and, and I suppose most performers in the country, and it's, um, yeah, the thought of them not being there uh, and leaving a, a huge gaping hole in the industry would be heartbreaking. So I really hope. They, Where can people yeah. see? Uh, on next up, so next up's Twitch stream, um, their YouTube stream, and uh, Facebook stream as well. And I think Angel Comedy should be uh, linked into it as well. So if you follow Angel Comedy online, you'll be able to see it through that as well. well what is Twitch? Uh, it's like a game of it. I don't know. I, I'm a real <laughs> luddite with this stuff. 
Uh, you say you you uh, Limmy's made like an amazing following it following on it, but um, he is yeah yeah where you just play along to games and have a kind of running commentary to what you're doing. But um, I I don't really know. I'm not that active on it yet. I'm trying to see if uh, I can do something on it. I don't know. But uh, yeah, like we're all just trying to migrate our skill set to the online realm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and and with me, it's uh, it's yeah, doing all right at the moment, but um, still but trying to work it all out. Saying all this like it's on Friday, this gig, but actually it's tonight. If you're listening, oh like... yeah, of course, yeah. Oh, you're breaking the illusion. I've already done, I've already oh, yeah. fucked this up once on Twitter, and now no, 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 it's tonight, it's tonight. It's tonight. So, uh, what what time? Eight o'clock? Nine, nine o'clock, nine p.m. to eleven to eleven p.m. on um, next. Time. And next up, uh, on their Twitch, Facebook, YouTube, and write in, like, do comments and all that stuff, and I'll, uh, I'll be able to uh, feed them back to the guests and, and answer them myself if, if they're aimed at me. So, uh, yeah, I think it'd be fun. Now, a lot of things I've been doing. I've done one with Eddie Izzard the other day. That was fucking great. It was, like, a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, please come and, come and watch. All right. Well, Brilliant. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much for that, guys. Sorry if I banged on a bit. I I, I never know if I'm no. rambling, but yeah. No, you absolutely smashed it. You smashed uh, it. Cheers. Lovely to lovely to see uh, you all. Yeah, lovely to see you. Good luck with it. Cheers, mate. See Good you later. Bye. See you later. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Now. That's incredible. That's incredible. Bye. Going around nursing homes and dementia wards and doing comedy. That's incredible. Yeah. I feel like an absolute sack of shit now. <laughs> Can we never have a guest like that on again? Because uh, uh, it just makes me... Parody or something. No, I mean, I'm not promoting anything. It's not me I'm worried about. I spent a week doing a video. It's you, Nat. It makes you look bad. It makes you, <laughs> it makes you look like... Oh. I got an email this week. I did an online gig and it was... I thought it was for charity, but the charity was sort of supporting comedians who are out of work now. And they said, they said, oh, the, the fee is 80 quid. Do you want the money or do you want it to go into the pot? And you, you can't go, I'll have it. <laughs> you go, I mean, put it in the pot. Put it in the pot. <laughs> I don't really know how I feel about that because it's just kind of like, if they're asking you to do a gig for uh, comedians that are in financial need, it's just kind of like, that's me. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I think I genuinely had the option to. It just felt feels a bit weird to then go when you when you give the option of do you want to do you want it or do you want it to go to charity? You just feel I give it charity. I can't. Can't we just cut out the middleman and just put it put it in my bank account? <laughs> I think I could have. I think I could have. I think that's. I think it was me being kind of nah. I used to do that, and this makes me sound amazing. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've just realised this story is just me saying, "Oh, I'm great, mate." I'm not. I don't know what I do. I, I, I kind of remember. The thing is, sort of like, the fee to put a thing on is not the same. You know, the, the pot of money that you're putting the event on is not the same pot of money that you're giving to charity. Yeah. Right? So if you're doing sort of like a televised charity thing, they have a budget in order to put it on so that they will make a lot more money. But I used to waive my fee. And it's thousands of pounds. <laughs> and like someone just came up to me and said, you're the only person that's doing it. And I was like, oh. <laughs> I thought everyone was doing it. Um, no, I don't really get asked to do much charity thing. So I guess I am probably the greatest person ever lived. <laughs> it does sound like it. 
No, actually, an incredibly, no, incredibly self-serving story that was. <laughs> I don't think that's true. And I think what you've actually done is stitched up everyone else. So if you're watching Comic Relief now and you see anyone else but Nick, you go, oh, unbelievable. They've just shown up for a payday. I don't think we get paid. For, I don't think we got paid for Comic Relief. No, um, I'm sure. You just, you just sure. get the uh, absolute kudos for doing it. Uh, <laughs> fucking hell. Uh, you just, if you do comic relief, you don't get paid, but you do get slagged off by Piers Morgan. Um, fucking cunt. So, um, although, although he's making COVID work for him, isn't he? Fucking. <laughs> he's going to come out of COVID a much more popular man than he was going in. He's really fucking wangled that. Um, right, time for some fan mail. You betcha. You betcha, you betcha. Um, so, <laughs> play that music. Um, is it playing? I guess it is. We'll add it on in post. Hello. Hello, hello. Happy birthday to Nat. What's Nat's fondest memory of seeing a film on his birthday? What's the best thing you guys have seen online this week? I'm enjoying quite a few Twitch shows on Next Up Comedy <laughs> and Matthew Skillington's Friday Quiz Night. Thanks. Typing this whilst watching 24-hour party people. Francis. Um, I assume she means the film. I think that's Francis uh, with an I, so it's probably a man Francis rather than a, a woman Francis. I don't want um, to judge anyone or make assumptions about anyone. I, uh, to be honest, I forgot what the beginning of the... Have I, seen, was. have I seen fondest memory of seeing a film on my birthday? Very rarely. I think one year uh, we went to see Uncle Buck on my birthday when I was about 38. No, I was about 10, I think, and we went to see Uncle Buck. <laughs> and I think of that as being quite a fond memory of... Uh, and, and I think I might have seen perhaps the first Turtles film on a birthday once. And, oh, um, fucking hell. Having, having a huge drink that was bigger than him. That's some of the memories <laughs> I think about. I don't remember seeing any films on my birthday. Um, I do remember going to see Halloween H2O on my sister's birthday, which was actually on Halloween, and that was pretty good. We went in the afternoon, and then we went um, we, we went and got drunk afterwards. Um, yeah, that was that was kind of I, they used to release like Halloween films on kind of like in the summer and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like release it at Halloween. It's called Halloween. It's don't, actually it should only be in the cinema for one day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, I, I liked it. And you know, um, you know, like Friday the 13th? Yeah. I can't remember which one it is, but like Friday the 13th, like part three is set the day after the events on Friday the 13th, part two, which makes it Saturday the 14th. It's true. What's that about? What the fuck is that about? You got one job and you fucked it. It's called Friday the 13th, Saturday the 14th. <laughs> Chilling. It's just like people. People cleaning up. Um, it's but that's but like, it's set the next day. It's just like that. That's not that's not Friday the thirteenth. That's like uh, doing a Halloween film set at Christmas. Absolutely unbelievable. I've not enjoyed watching anything online this week. Great content as well, excellent content. We're enjoying it. 
Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Nat! Did you have a good Zoom celebration, or did you celebrate it by watching a film? What do people do with lockdown birthdays? I'm enjoying listening to Fun Size Five Star Family Fun Star Fan Club. It reminds me of the good old days when I wasn't so fucking alone. Or I think they've added a so in there. It reminds me of the good old days when I wasn't fucking alone. Keep it light, Holly. Good old Holly. And what was the lockdown birthday? We've already discussed that. It was absolutely fucking miserable. Don't buy yourself cake. You'll forget you bought it and it'll go hard. <laughs> okay, we've got a three-star question for a five-star show. Dear Nat and Nick, in that order, go fuck yourself. We are moving on. Um, sorry, Adam, Oldgate London, you have me, messed up. He's close to me. I could walk to his house. Maybe I'll walk to your house. Oh, I'll read it. I hope you're both surviving the lockdown relatively intact. Uh, I, I guess what he's done there, dear Nat and Nick, in that order, he saved the best till last, I guess. That's what he must have done. Good old Adam. Good old Adam. I hope you are both surviving the lockdown relatively intact. Glad, glad you're back to give your fans some much-needed five-star entertainment. I would like to know what each of your all-time favourite British comedy film is. My favourite is Withnail and I, but honourable mention needs to go to In The Loop. All the best, Adam, Olgay, London. Uh, favourite British comedy film? What's your favourite British comedy film? The Lady Killers. It's mine. I love it. Uh, uh, mine is... Um, uh, kind Hearts and Coronets, maybe? Oh, they're good, yeah. They're, they're, uh, mine is uh, Confessions of a Window Cleaner. Uh, <laughs> That's good, also. Right. Did you see um, Robin Asquith's tweet you did the other day? About Quentin Tarantino? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he did a thing. So his tweet was basically like... Um, uh, my agent got a call from someone claiming to be Quentin Tarantino uh, recently to, tell, uh, to ask what I was up to. And I said I was doing panto with the Chuckle Brothers and never heard from them again. He wrote someone claiming to be as if as if in his head he can't justify because he must be going, I mean, it better not have been. Whereas actually you think Quentin Tarantino is exactly the type of person who probably would know who Robin Asquith was and might well email him and go, What's he up to? And so it's yeah, awful. But, but what, like, but when uh, when he got John Travolta to do Pulp Fiction, he must have been doing something similar to Panto with the Chuckle Brothers at the time. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's just yeah. kind of like, just because he's doing Panto with the Chuckle Brothers doesn't mean that Quentin Tarantino would just fuck off and leave yeah. him. Yeah. If he's got an interest. But, um, uh, so I don't know. I don't know. But um, someone that, you know, th- th- that's the classic story, isn't it? When... People. Can we get Robin Asquith on, Natalie? Yes. Can we get Robin Asquith on? Fucking hell. I would probably say that one of my favourite... Hmm. I, it's, a, it's a hard toss-up. I mean, I can't really, off the top of my head, think of that many British comedies. Um, but I would say, uh, out of all of the Carry On films, my favourite two are Carry On Cowboy and Carry On Cruising. There you go. Maybe Carry, maybe carry On Screaming. If I had to pick a Carry On film... Uh, it would probably be Love Carry On Cruising. Have you ever seen that? I'm sure I have. Is that the one where they have to make a big meal on a on a boat that's going everywhere? They have to get yeah. They have to get um. They have to work out what uh, Sid James's favourite drink is. An Aberdeen Angus. 
<laughs> and uh, my favourite carry on is um, carry on at your convenience is the one I always like, but I think it's not well liked. <laughs> What's that one? Is that a black and white one? No, it's one where it's sort of set in a toilet factory. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can't. I can't remember seeing that. They just used to. There used to be like a season of them on. I just fucking. I just thought. I think Sid James, in Carry On Cowboy, just looks like a leading man. He looks like a classic. Looks like a classic Hollywood leading man. You know, like a Humphrey Bogart or something like that. He just looks incredible in Carry On Cowboy. Um, and it's got them all in it. And Jim Dale's great in that. Um, he's like the lead. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, and Nick went to see Jim Dale live. Uh, in the theatre a couple of years ago, and it was incredible. What a directed by Kenneth Branagh, wasn't it? It might have been. Maybe it was. I think Kenneth Branagh directed it. I've got the programme somewhere. Yeah, Jim Dale. What a, what a legend. He used to get, whenever you got, um, in the in the early 2000s, whenever you got, like, an iMac, it would come with Harry Potter. The first three chapters of Harry Potter read by Jim Dale before uh, Stephen Fry took over. Uh, time for some more questions. Uh, no questions, just wishing Nathaniel a happy lockdown birthday. I mean, you're a week late. Sadly, sadly I've stopped singing happy birthday when washing my hands. Otherwise, I'd have dedicated today's to that happy birthday, Nina! Um, hey, my main chums, I'm bored of eating human food. I think I've tried everything during lockdown. What do you suggest I should get my munch on with next? Ta-ta, bunny. Um, get your munch on. What should you get your munch on? Is it, is it actually a bunny? So if it's a bunny, probably either lettuce or Cadbury's caramel. That's the two things they eat, isn't it? Yeah, maybe. I'd eat a carrot, but all of mine have been... Doesn't matter. Yo, baby, yo! Hope you're having a good week. You both look hot. What is your favourite Miley Cyrus song? Wrecking Ball. Uh, I've been meaning to ask you this for a while, but now is the time. Thanks, babe, Dave. Knock, knock. Are you wearing shoes whilst you're at home, Zed? Um, I'm wearing slippers. How I'm about you? Slippers. What kind of slippers have you got? Have they got backs to them? Or have they got... I've, got, I've got these Dunlop ones. Oh, nice. So it's they're part, fucking comfy. Yeah, they're, that's like part sock, part with like a, a tread on the bottom. Yeah, they're fucking comfy. I love them. Have we got um, more? Should... <laughs> yeah, just, just to uh, listen. How many have we got? We've got... Oh, that's a long one. Um, we've got about four more and then we'll get our guest on, right? Is that okay? Yeah. Um, oh, hello. Uh, yeah. Hello! It's been a joy finding you through the lock-up and catching up on your fine, smouldering shows. I'm looking forward to getting out of this and enjoying some good old rumping. I'll be on a rump rampage through the streets of Ascot. What is your favourite cut of steak from Percy Filth III? Um, what's my favourite cut, st- cut of steak? What is my favourite cut of steak? What's your favourite cut of steak? Um, what do I normally have? Like, uh... I don't know, like a sirloin? Is that a cut? Does that count as a cut? My, yeah, mine's a T-bone. So you get like a big steak and a little steak in one, and uh, and, a, and, and a bone, 
that gives me a... <laughs> Never mind. Hi, Nick. Hi, Hi Nick and that. Hope you're both well. I saw a sale online the other night about a shining in which they discussed the different answers. They would choose if they could recast it now. Or they film for you and recast. Lots of love. Claire. I've always said that Alan Rickman would have made an excellent Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, that'd be good. He got the nose. He had the nose, didn't he? he had the nose for it. Um, so yeah, I would, I would put, I would put Alan Rickman in, in any Sherlock Holmes film as Sherlock Holmes. Uh, how about you, Nat? That I would recast none whatsoever. All films no. perfectly cast. That's what I'd say. Uh, okay. Um, hello, Nat and Nick. When this is over, would you like me to come and give you a pedicure and maybe a foot lick? I'll be very happy and don't charge a lot. I bet you've got delicious little tootsies. Phyllis in North London. Um, I'm, I'm all right. What is your favourite cheese? I have a platter for dinner every evening and would love to add to my collection. Thanks, Cecil B. My favourite cheese is obviously the Cam Cambazola. It's from Germany, and it is a mixture between Gorgonzola and Camembert, but it's really just a blue brie. We discussed this when the cheese lady was on. Yeah, Hi, guys. Bloody love this show. Can what's your, what's your, what's your favourite cheese, Nat? Laughing Cow. Laughing Cow. Brilliant. Uh, good evening. I really like watching a film whilst I'm in the bath. I need a decent recommendation from you this evening. Bubbles, please. Donny P. Hello. What is your favourite carry-on film? Ducky. Wow, fucking hell. That was two in one. Boy, told Jeff. Carry-on fucking cruising. Good evening. I like watching a film in, whilst in the bath. Well, I watched a film in the bath the other day. Um, no, it wasn't a film. Hey guys, bloody love this show. Can I please get a cunt shout out? I really love impressions and it would cheer me up to hear you do some. Who can you impersonate? Nice one, McMuffy. I can do a good impression of you, McMuffy. Hi guys, bloody love this show. Can I please get a cunt shout out? McMuffy, you fucking cunt. Right, got one more. Hi Nick. Hi Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf. Oh, they're in on it. Hi Nick and Nathaniel Metcalf. Thanks for carrying on with the show during lockdown. I find comfort in routine at the moment, so it's nice to be able to carry listening. Carry on listening. That's my favourite carry on film. Last week you spoke about Taika Waititi. I genuinely really like Thor Ragnarok, but I love his other films and prefer them. In the last week, I've rewatched Boy and Hunt. For, um, um, in the last week, I watched Boy and Hunt for the Wilder People. Hunt for the Wilder People. It's a great fucking movie. Uh, I also like Eagle vs. Shark. I enjoy a good coming of age sweet comedy drama, so they really appeal to me. I love Eagle vs. Shark. I beat you to it, you fucking prick. But I haven't watched it for ages, so we'll be watching that this week. I didn't get around to see Jojo Rabbit at the cinema, but it's on Amazon Prime. Now, so that is another film on my list this week. Do you both have any favourites of his or other similar stuff? This is a long fucking message. <laughs> I did the brackets for Nat there. Son of Rambo is another one from that genre that I like. Keep on trucking, Gina. Of course, if it's in brackets, I have to say it in the <laughs> of Christopher Lee. So I should have... Do you both have any favourite? Hang on! Do you both... You can't just do brackets on its own, can you? Right. Do, do you both have any favourites of his? 
or similar style films. Uh, I did the brackets for Napa. Eh? Son of Rambo is another one of the. What's my favourite coming of age movie? Mm. What's your favourite? Mm. Uh, I'll tell you what. What? Go on. I'll tell you what I love, which is an odd one. Kez. Not very funny, but I'd say that's coming of age. You also like The Elephant Man as well, don't you? Love it. And the first 90% of It's a Wonderful Life. Fucking bleak. Um, it's not coming of age, but I watched Cocoon for the first time this week. Oh, yeah. Which is sort of like coming of age, you know? The opposite. It's the opposite. Um, I watched Cocoon for the first time. It's fucking incredible. Uh, it's, it's brilliant. It's one of those films for me that I've probably seen... 20 times when I was a kid. I used to get it out of the video shop all the time. I, I'd never seen it. I, I just always got put off. I thought, uh, the, wor- the only bad bit in it is the bit when he does break dancing, And that's because it's like, just because you're young doesn't mean you can break dance. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It takes training. You need to you, you need to build up to that. He just sort of like starts, sort of, and it also it's, it's, it's cringy. But fucking hell, Steve Guttenberg's fucking incredible in it. Fucking good for, good for him. Good for him. All right, let's play a song and then we'll get our guest on. Yes. Okay, what I'm going to play is, because it's May Day tomorrow, or t- today, in fact, it's the May Day holiday, I thought I'd play a bit of The Wicker Man. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're back! Uh, we're joined in the studio now by Susie Gage, uh, and she is an epidemiologist, uh, journalist, and podcaster. Hello. Hello. That's me. Hello. That's me. <laughs> That's me doing my intro. I was so happy with me being able to pronounce epidemiologist. I can, I've got more confident as well, haven't I? Nailed it. I can, I can do it really fast now. Epidemiologist. I've realised when we said that as well, we didn't introduce you as Dr. Susie Gage. I feel like we've undone you. We've taken it's, it's, it's fine. Do not worry. <laughs> Dr. Susie Gage. Um, so your, uh, your podcast is called Say Why to Drugs. It is, yeah. Um, and uh, tell us a bit about that. Uh, I started it about three, three and a half, four years ago. Um, I took part in this thing called I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here which is a kind of public engagement thing where scientists are paired with um, classes of school children around the country. And the school children can ask the scientists any question they want. And part of it is to show that like, I'm an epidemiologist and psychologist. I don't know how much the moon weighs, for example, but I can tell you about um, the links between drug use and mental health and that kind of thing. So part of it is kind of to show kids that there's lots of different types of scientists, that they're not all men with wild hair and glasses sitting in a room and that knows everything about everything, but they're actually really varied and look at really different things and they come from all walks of life and that kind of thing. But it's also a competition. And so after a week of the the kids asking you all these questions, they then vote for their favourite scientist each day and the one that wins gets a bit of money to do a project. And the thing, you have to pitch the project to the kids as well, so partly they're voting on that. And I said I wanted to make a podcast with kind of information about what we know about the science around different recreational drugs, but without any of the like stigma and judgment and hyperbole that quite often goes around this information. Like it's really hard, the information's all out there, but it's really hard to find it without that kind of layer of judgment on it. So that was the idea. 
How old, how old are these kids? They were um, secondary school kids. So they ranged, I think they ranged from like 13 to 18. Yeah. And that's probably <laughs> the, the right kind of age room to be finding out. Cause that's, I guess there was those websites, wasn't there, like Frank and things like that, that were a few years ago that was trying to aim to do a similar thing. Yeah. So trying to be like honest, honest about drug use and the effects rather than give sort of informing people rather than trying to, um, uh, have a go at them for using it or just trying to be very open about this is the effect this will have on it yeah but ultimately that is still a government website so it is kind of saying don't do this and obviously i'm not saying do do this but it, I, I can come from a bit more of an independent place i didn't realize that i thought the aim of that was much more of a kind of informative but oh, it, no it, i mean it definitely is yeah it's much more honest than lots of things when I was when I was at school, we used to have like drug talks uh, from the actual teachers, and they didn't know anything about drugs. And uh, they, like, I remember, we had one assembly where a teacher talked for like forty-five minutes about marijuana, and it's just like you don't even pronounce. And we all knew how to pronounce it, and it's just like the t person that was teaching us about this stuff didn't even know how to pronounce the drugs. So, uh, so it was just kind of like no one took that seriously. I think it's really the first thing we did. Well, the first thing we did was we all went out and got stoned off our fucking faces. So uh, it's just, if anything, there was a massive backlash to it. I think we um, had one lesson in school, and it was a policeman came in, and I remember it because his name was PC Ham, which I thought, if you're a policeman going into schools, that's really unfortunate. <laughs> Yeah. But he brought in a like a suitcase with a glass front, which had loads of different drugs in it, kind of sort of. But it was all presented from a kind of criminal sort of legal perspective rather than a health and sort of psychological and social perspective. Drugs were seen as this thing that illegal, but sort of the effects of them wasn't really talked about at all. And the podcast you do with Scroobius Pip, and it, isn't his thing that he sort of has taken some recreational drugs and he's he's trying to approach it very kind of in the same way, right? He's, he's doing it from the point of view of saying, I have taken some drugs and this is the effect it had on him. And you're there to say, this is a sort of wider way of looking at it, or this is specifically the effects one might have on you. Yeah, absolutely. It was amazingly lucky that we were sort of put in touch through Twitter. And I mentioned this idea to him and he really liked it and said, I'm starting a podcast network. You should put it out on that. And also you should do it as you, the expert, talking to a non-expert but interested friend. And I can be that friend if you want. And I was like, OK, yes, please. Thanks. That's perfect. And it just because I've been trying to make them with me interviewing scientists and no disrespect to the people I was interviewing, but it was so boring. I think partly it's because I didn't know I wasn't a very good interviewer at the time and um, I didn't really know how to do recording or what to ask and that kind of thing. So they were just really dry. But having it as a conversation like that with someone who was willing to talk about their own experiences and their experiences of their friends and that kind of thing, it just brought the whole thing to life and it kind of took off in a way I wasn't really expecting, but that was really great. Absolutely, and also he would act as an entry level for your audience. Exactly, so he, he kept can, me in check. He can ask you the questions that, that, that people, that, you know, real people would have uh, coming from it as a non-expert, uh, from a non-expert point of view. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, yeah. that's a great format, and, uh, and Scroobius Pip's a lovely guy as well. Yeah, he is. It was just, he was so easy to talk to and it just flowed really naturally, even though for about the first four or five times we met, we'd only ever spoken to each other on mic. So that was a bit odd. <laughs> Being like, I know you really well, but only through, through a microphone. I've realised reading the book as well, I'm, 
uh, I, I'm fairly straight edge and I was thinking, oh, well, I'm, I'm probably not well informed. I'm not someone who's done, well, what I think of like as illegal drugs. I'm not, I'm fairly straight edge in that regard. And I've read the first sort of three or four chapters of your book. And straight away, the things you're dealing with, though, are things like alcohol and caffeine, which are things that I do have, like, you know, probably most days. Um, and, uh, and so you, that's, the, that's the kind of entry level of the book. You're sort of starting off by saying everyone is taking some form of drug every day. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really the distinction between legal drugs and illegal drugs is kind of arbitrary. There's no, there's no real, like it's impossible to sort of, if you were given the substances and their effects and you were told to categorise them into what you thought was legal and illegal without the names of the drugs, I don't think you'd be able to do it. And obviously it's different in different places around the world. Some substances are legal in some places, not in others. And with cannabis, it's so interesting now how that the legal or the legality of cannabis is changing around the world and that kind of thing as well. So yeah, I didn't really want to make the distinction between legal and illegal drugs. It's much more about these substances that we take that are psychoactive that do something in our brains let's learn about them or find out more about them and of course so many of these drugs as well as something that would be prescribed as well like there'll be something you get off your doctor or and that's what by chapter you're going through a different type of drug and explaining what that does or the effect of it on on you as a person rather than with any without any kind of judgment or just to be kind of upfront about it that's the idea right yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also look a little bit at kind of the history of them as well, which I didn't know much about before I started researching for the book. And yeah, how that some of them that you think of as like illicit recreational drugs, like ketamine, for example, are actually incredibly useful medicinally and in veterinary science as well. That was one of the most interesting chapters to write, to find out so much more about the substance that I, because I used to live in Bristol, Bristol had a bit of a reputation for being a sort of ketamine city. So I knew quite a lot about it anecdotally, but then actually reading about it in terms of like it's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines and why that is and why it's really useful in camel surgery. So you know. I, I thought of being horse tranquilizer and that then I was going, but then I saw it on, there was like one of those kind of SOS shows on the other day and I didn't realize there was someone who was injured there who was given ketamine by like the ambulance service who was then kind of then talking and making stuff up about what you could see and um but i had no i, I didn't really realize that was a medical thing given to to actual human beings i thought it was four horses <laughs> yeah absolutely why um uh, so how how is uh, ketamine uh, used medicinally then well, the reason it's on, that, on the list of essential medicines is because it's, a, it's what's called a dissociative anaesthetic. So it has the kind of anaesthetic properties that are really useful in pain management. But because it doesn't operate in the same ways as other anaesthetics, so you don't need to breathe it in as a gas, for example. It can be injected or it can be taken in lots of different ways. But it's also got a much um, higher what's called sort of window of efficacy, which means if you take too much, there's more of a sort of gap up the top before you overdose and before you might pass out or have severe problems so if you haven't got the kind of if you haven't got a proper hospital or that kind of thing where you can carefully monitor someone's um, consciousness if you're trying to make them unconscious with an anesthetic then ketamine is really useful because you've got that sort of safety window above it so it's really useful in sort of yeah roadside emergency so the emergency services use it but also in like war zones or in countries where there isn't so much infrastructure to have sort of ventilators available and that kind of thing 
do you, do you talk about your own drug use in the book at all or lack of it or or do you feel that's kind of confusing or takes away from what you're trying to say yeah so I haven't ever talked about it and I don't talk about it on the podcast and I don't talk about it in the book and the, the reason for that is because when I first started sort of doing kind of public engagement or science journalism um I was right I wrote for the Guardian, I, I had a science blog on the Guardian website, and it was around the time that plain packaging of cigarettes was being introduced. And I wrote quite a lot about that and about the sort of the politics around it. And I came under quite a lot of sort of fire from um, libertarian bloggers and people like that. And I sort of learned quite quickly that whatever personal information you put out there will be used as a stick to beat you with, kind of whatever it is. So if I say, oh, I've taken x y and z then people go oh well you you've got you've got ulterior motives for doing this research then and if i say i've never taken x y and z then people will say well how can you be talking about this if you don't have personal experience of it so what basically whatever i say i lose so i kind of keep it separate mm -hmm. have you taken x y and z oh your x y and z is absolutely the best drug and everyone should that's take it immediately I'm, I'm pretty down with it and that's the bit that you're, you're clipping aren't you I was walking home quite recently and um and there were some kids there were some uh, kids hanging about near where i live who said uh, asked me if i wanted to buy some weed and i said no but i tried to do it in a way that was like um no not not tonight i think i'm i think i'm all right actually i've got i've got some biscuits and that'll do me thanks very much i feel like i want i still want to maintain that i'm like a cool guy and I'm not, I'm not trying to put any judgment on them, but I can't do it in a cool way. I can't, I can't manage to get, to get my message across, which is that I'm a pretty cool guy, but I, I don't really want to buy any weed. Thanks, kids. It's like the bit in Spaced where she's offered a Tic Tac, and she's like, just a half, and he says it's a Tic Tac. And she goes, yeah, yeah, just a half. <laughs> from, from Tony Way. Oh yeah, we were just talking about that. Yeah, we were just talking Tony, about Tony Way. That's fan club. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so why, so, so alcohol, right, is, uh, is legal. And if I wanted to, I could go to the off-license and I could buy loads and loads of uh, alcohol and I could get completely off my, I mean, this is a, this, hypothetical, this yeah. is a hypothetical scenario, right? But I could go to the off-license, I could load up and I could, I could, I could drink to the point that I pass out uh, or I'm catatonic um, and that's legal, right? Uh, but something like, uh, and I'm not like one of them people that's sort of like, well, marijuana should be legalised, and and uh, and if you're going to legalise, or if you're going to make marijuana illegal, then you should make alcohol illegal. But I do find it interesting that uh, alcohol is quite a scary drug when you really think about it, because you can black out on it, and you can do stuff that uh, that you, well that you don't remember, and uh, and and it's just all legal it's just about kind of like how many times you go back to the bar how many times you go back to the off license how many you know you can do all sorts of damage to yourself kind of legally whereas something like marijuana it can be just as bad uh but then also um i don't, I don't really know exactly what i'm trying to say but why why has why has uh, marijuana got such a massive uh stigma to it is it just uh, politics 
I think it's changing, you know, but I think you're making a really important point that the, the line between legal and illegal is completely arbitrary. And like tobacco is one of the most harmful, well, tobacco in cigarettes particularly is one of the most harmful to humans substances that we know about. Like if used as you're meant to use tobacco cigarettes, one in two people will die prematurely because of it. So, and that's legal. Um, that is sort of mind-blowing really um and alcohol as you say it's a drug that has an impact on loads and loads of different um neurotransmitters in the brain so most like um, psychoactive substances might impact one or two of these neurotransmitters so they're things like dopamine serotonin that you might have heard of um but alcohol seems to affect loads of them and it has loads of different effects as you say it can make you black out it really impairs your judgment you might be more likely to partake in sort of risky sexual behavior or all sorts of different things get into fights fall off a wall um and then not only that agree to you... do a charity event <laughs> if you do if you do try and stop then there's a really severe withdrawal if you're dependent on alcohol and try and stop then you run the risk of having seizures and potentially worse so you can really need support to stop with alcohol and then if you start drinking again after you've stopped your tolerance is completely different so it's really easy to overdose and, and put yourself in serious serious risk um, and some substances the risk profile doesn't look like that and um, the one thing though to say about illicit drugs is they are more risky because they're illicit and that cannabis may be less so but certainly things that are like a pill or a powder not only do you have the risks of the substance itself, but also of not knowing what it is that you're taking because it's like alcohol is regulated. We see on the side of the bottle exactly how, how many units of alcohol are in it. And yet we still misjudge it all the time. Well, not all the time, hopefully. Uh, we still misjudge it frequently and drink more than we intend to and experience negative consequences from that, even if it's as mild as a hangover or it could be as severe as breaking your leg or worse. Um, with illegal drugs as well you might be taking a risk in just buying it you might be putting yourself in a oh yeah and there's the criminal risk as well yeah well and putting yourself in potentially date physical danger from where you are then you might be taking it somewhere so if you're injecting a drug you might be taking it somewhere that's sort of not very hygienic and putting yourself at more risk from that so you know there's loads of risks that come from substances being illicit as well one of the really interesting things i thought in the alcohol chapter was this idea that um if you drink a small amount um not only might you find other people more attractive but they might also find you more attractive and yep. i find that really fascinating like there's probably a bit where i suppose there is a level of it where if you had like was it was it was a unit you said like one glass of wine that you might feel more confident or something i don't know i was trying to think of the logic around it that what's the thing about that where are you yeah. more relaxed or something? Is there something? I mean, that that's my kind of working hypothesis about those findings, because they are really weird. You can understand that if you were a bit drunk, you might find other people more attractive. And we've probably all been in that situation as well. But the, for that people might find you when you're a little bit drunk, more attractive. But I do think it probably is down to, yeah, being a bit more relaxed. Maybe you've lost your inhibitions a little bit. You're a bit more kind of open. Um, also alcohol induces a flush response in your face and there's there's evolutionary psychology evidence that suggests if you've got rosy cheeks that might make you look a bit more attractive so there's all sorts of possible reasons but to me it seems the most likely that it's yeah that you're a bit more relaxed and sort of 
open, I guess. You're probably a bit more like you are if you weren't, you know, you're probably like you are with your friends more. Okay. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And that's, like, people use alcohol in that way all the time to sort of make social situations a bit easier. Yeah, and job interviews. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I watched I watched a I watched a YouTube thing yesterday about the difference between rubbing alcohol and uh, drinking alcohol, and they were talking about how that there is a thing within the sort of alcohol that you drink because it's completely different stuff, right? Um, and there's a difference between there's a thing in the alcohol that you drink that does actually affect like the colour of your face. That, that there's a chemical within alcohol that actually I just thought it was like when you drink you get a bit warm. <laughs> but it's not that it actually it's part of the actual stuff that you're drinking it makes your face flushed yeah and there are people with a genetic um difference who uh get a really really aggressive flushing response so it's about when alcohol is metabolized so that you can get it out of your body it's metabolized into a couple of different stages and some people don't have the genetic code that codes for one of the things that does the metabolizing so they get alcohol metabolized into this really really toxic chemical called acetaldehyde that that is what causes the face flush but then they don't get it metabolized further down into the thing that can get out of their body so lots of people with that don't drink at all because it's really unpleasant as you might imagine my sister my sister can't drink white wine and she, if she does she comes out in an entire rash um I take her word for that, but like that's what happens. I've got a friend who um, his so his hangovers uh, ruin uh, your day. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like uh, so, uh, so like we'll go out and um, there'll be like three of us. Uh, we went. Well, I won't, he'll know who it is by just me telling the story. But we went to see uh, we went to see Alice Cooper in Berlin, and there was three of us, and we all were drinking the same amount. And the next day, uh, two of us, me and the other guy, um, uh, we were fine, absolutely, we could function. But the other guy, who is a little bit smaller than us, and but uh, but in actual fact, we went for one drink later without him because he was sort of paralytic and um and his hangover was just so ridiculously awful that it just ruined the holiday we just wanted to we wanted to we wanted to come home early it was like and um is there something in that that um that perhaps uh it might not be like a, vis a visible thing but um but just by consuming alcohol if you could be allergic to alcohol without realizing it and uh, and it comes through in uh, ruining a planned weekend away to Berlin. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely individual differences between how people respond to alcohol, but also so much of it is psychological as well. So, like, not a psychological example, but what you what you eat can impact on how much you metabolize alcohol or how quickly you do or how bad your hangover is what and how much you eat um, how much sleep you get all of these things also impact on your hangover a friend of mine dr sally adams doing some amazing research looking at hangovers but it's incredibly hard to do research because you you want to bring people into the lab but obviously the worse your hangover is the less likely you are to get up and come and do a psychology experiment if you're feeling absolutely awful <laughs> so so it's it's a challenging field to research but 
how like where you are impacts on how alcohol affects you as well so lots of research has found that you can drink more alcohol um in certain environments where you're used to where you've drunk alcohol before than if you're in a novel environment and this seems to be true for other substances including like heroin as well if you take heroin in a novel environment to where you usually would take it um, you're more likely to overdose because uh, your body somehow knows like associates where you are with the substance or it seems like that's what's happening it's not very well understood but so so much of intoxication is sort of subjective and what you're kind of expecting and i think that probably has a bearing then on on how you'll be the next day no, but i mean i'm i'm a lightweight as well so i i have to be really careful if i try and keep up with everyone else and the problem with alcohol is everyone encourages you to keep up with everyone else and sort of go and get around in and like come on you you haven't been drinking very quickly kind of thing it's like well i know because I'll feel horrific the next day so I need to pace myself. I wonder if that's again about sort of feeling relaxed or something or being in a familiar place that it's less likely to have an effect. I mean me and Nick come from like a stand-up background and I know that often if I'm playing a venue that I've played lots of times I'm much more relaxed on stage. I don't know if you find that Nick and there's no reason because the audiences are different but I feel more confident in a venue I've played before. I don't know. I don't know about that, Nat. I think that that's nothing really to do with alcohol. Because I, I, I think about, um, I think about the Green Man when we used to do Perfect Movie, and it would be the same audience every week, and um, uh, and I was so relaxed on stage because I was familiar with the environment. But also, uh, Susie, it was a cider bar, and they sold um, a cider that was eight uh, percent called Special Cellar, <laughs> and I could drink one and a half pints uh that was my limit before i went on stage but if i drank more than that i was incapable of putting a sentence together it was just like yeah that knocks this is you what out. i find really interesting about alcohol as well is like some so i i'm a musician i've played in lots of bands and i've played in bands with people who get absolutely hammered before they before we play and they can play perfectly but I had one experience when I was quite young maybe like 19 or so where we went down and played this amazing venue in Southampton called The Hobbit and there were hardly any it was brilliant and there were hardly I used any to go drinking there. there I used to go drinking there yeah it's a great pub but there were hardly yeah. any people there just us and the band that we we traveled down from Bristol in a van together and um so I I was like, oh, it's rubbish. There's no hardly any people here. And so I got really drunk and I got so paranoid about my ability to play that I just I just was like, never again. I'm never playing drunk again because it, I didn't really make any mistakes, but I had a horrible time. Whereas other people have the opposite and they find themselves really anxious. So they need to drink before they go and play to kind of steady their nerves. My, uh, my, because uh, I, I play guitar a bit. I'm not great, but um, that is the first thing to go when when i start drinking it's kind of like you know if you're at a party and someone's got a guitar i mean they're awful parties anyway but if you're at a party and someone's got a guitar it's just kind of i'm just incapable of playing it if i've had anything to drink um and i find it absolutely mind-boggling to think that there are sort of like you know all of my <laughs> all of my favorite bands from like the 80s they were all like going on stage with bottles of jack daniels and they were they were playing concerts and you go that's that's crazy to me that you can do anything like that drug uh, drunk or like on heroin or do you know what i mean it's kind of i i find yeah i find that crazy another weird and thing. that's the end of that <laughs> <laughs> 
another odd thing that's in the bit about alcohol is that thing that I, certainly I've noticed um, anecdotally, but it's nice to see it as a fact, was about that you just don't really see young people in pubs anymore. And by young people, I mean people younger than me. Um, which is most people now, but um, <laughs> it's a. But you don't really get that culture of kind of eighteen, nineteen-year-olds in pubs anymore, and that seems to have that seems to be a thing of the past. There's certainly evidence that young people are drinking less than we did when we were that age. Um, well, I don't, I don't know how old you guys are, but I was um like 2001 is if you if someone's created this beautiful image of um alcohol consumption over the years and 2001 seems to be peak booze and i don't know if it was like lad culture or that kind of thing but that was basically when i went to university and <laughs> and yeah it was um but it does seem like young people are drinking less although having said that when they do go out drinking, they are binge drinking as much, if not more. So they're not having as many drinking occasions, but they're kind of saving them all up and, and really going for it. And that could be for all sorts of reasons. So there's some really interesting work happening in Sheffield trying to investigate why we might be seeing this pattern. Is it that young people are sort of spending more time online or is it that... Um, there's a lot more pressure on young people when to sort of do better in exams because it's harder to get into university and that kind of thing or has however many years of austerity politics had an impact on people's disposable income so you know there's all of these possible factors as to why we're seeing this pattern it's, i wonder if it's sort of like a say it again Nat. i know i was just gonna say i wonder if one of them is like things like dating i guess i think young people being on tinder and things more than they are Meeting. Yeah, you, you don't need to go out and get drunk in yeah. a club to meet someone. You just get your phone out. Yeah, I get, I, I do Tinder drunk at home on my own. It's great. <laughs> just don't have to go. Uh, but it's sort of like it's normal. It's, it was it was normalised in sort of like the late late nineties, early two thousands. I just remember stuff like um, TFI Friday, and it was set in a bar, and everyone was drinking, and it was on at like six o'clock in the evening, and like people were, and, and that's just sort of sort of like that was like the culture, and I feel like it was like a really laddie thing, for like for like boys and girls, but like it was, I do feel like it was like at the end of like Britpop, and everything was kind of like really laid back, and everyone was drinking, and it was all, and, and like. Loaded magazine was kind of like this huge thing, and I just feel like that was the but it's kind of why did that go away? Did that go away because people stopped really being into drinking loads, so it disappeared from view, or did it disappear from view and people stopped promoting it, and so it had a knock on effect? Because I know with the smoking ban, as soon as the smoking ban came in, uh, that was that was a huge thing, but also. Um, you know, because this is, we talk about films all the time, there's like a big cut-off point between like the 90s when someone like uh, Bruce Willis in Die Hard, one of his defining traits in those films was that he smoked. And then when you cut to like the mid-2000s, and it's just kind of like, if he can kill as many people on screen as he wants, but if he's smoking a cigarette, it's going to be an 18 certificate or an R rating so that kids can't see it. And so the, in all of the like media and marketing, they were just like, right, well, we get rid of cigarettes. We stop advertising cigarettes. We stop uh, showing cigarettes in a cool light. Like Bruce Willis is really cool when he smokes, but he's going to stop smoking. Uh, and then that kind of... Like, as, and, and you just think, are we that susceptible? You know, are we, th are we that kind of like simplistic, really, uh, psychologically to crack? And you go, yeah, we are, because it sort of totally works. Because kids yeah, think I mean that it's... 
kids think that if you smoking is like the biggest losery thing that you can do. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the amount of money that uh, tobacco companies spend on marketing, they definitely think it works. So, you know, that's got to tell you something. <laughs> it's extraordinary now. If you watch any kind of drama and you see someone light a cigarette, you go, oh, it sort of feels that, especially if you see them in like a restaurant or something. If you see if, like a, a, something that was made 10 or 15 years ago and you just see someone light up in a bar or restaurant and in a drama, it still sort of blows your mind. You go, well, when was this made? You can't do that. And it, it, it's automatically the, the culture changed overnight. And I remember thinking, I was on a f- go on. I was just going to say that's it seemed to happen like in that way that everyone was saying this will never happen you'll never be able to implement this ban then virtually mm-hmm. overnight everyone went oh my clothes don't smell anymore <laughs> and that seemed to just be how it how it just yeah, got- but now but now I can smell other people's farts and <laughs> you know there was the downside you know um I worked in a pub when the smoking ban came in and it was kind of it was really fascinating to watch because, you know, people were just like outright saying, oh, no, I'm, I'm just going to drink at home and I'll smoke at home. You can't tell me what to do. And then you open up and there they were at 11, 11 o'clock in the morning banging on the door trying to get in because nothing, nothing changed about, I guess their love of alcohol was greater than their need to smoke. You know, and they could smoke outside. But I was on a plane recently that had ashtrays. It was such an old plane that had ashtrays. And you go, fuck it, hell ashtrays on a plane that is that's terrifying that the sequence of snakes on a plane <laughs> that is the sequence of snakes on a plane yeah that's right <laughs> well it used to be that planes and restaurants and things had like smoking areas and non-smoking areas as if that made well, like, the blindest bit of difference <laughs> where the spoons there'd be sort of like this kind of like a bit of rope saying that over on that side you can smoke and it's kind of like yeah but you can lean over and breathe in people's faces not that i ever did that but it was just kind of like <laughs> It's, it, it, it's absolutely insane, the precautions that you'd have. You could have a no-smoking table right next to a smoking table, and you could be elbow to elbow, but there was a little bit of geography that just meant that you could you could behave a different way. It was, yeah, it's, it's all really crazy. Um, but then uh, the government uh, taxes cigarettes and alcohol, so they make a lot of, more money. And do you think it would be a case of, like, if they legalised everything, they could just tax everything? And then... So why are some things why are some things legalized and then taxed and why are yeah you know, I guess that was my point earlier it's just like I'm not like I don't I'm not coming at it with an agenda I'm just literally I don't I mean it's as weird as on that side of the table you can smoke and on that side of the table you can't smoke is marijuana is illegal and alcohol isn't and what's the what's the what's I, I don't I don't can't get my head around it because I think that they're probably uh, give or take as, as bad or as good as each other you know yeah I think I think you're entirely right and it is it is arbitrary but it's really what's interesting is looking at cannabis it, around the world and how you can say like oh one's legal and one's illegal but actually alcohol is regulated and it's um you can only buy it if you're a certain age you can only buy it at certain times of the day and that's i mean in some countries around the world it's even more strict than that so in scandinavian countries for example you can't buy strong alcohol after a certain time of night and also you can only buy it from certain places it's not available in every supermarket that you can buy very very cheap beer not cheap sorry a uh, low abv beer in i mean it's really expensive and it's really expensive yeah it's really expensive in scandinavia 
but cannabis is being treated differently in different parts of the world. So the US has gone really for the kind of capitalist tax everything, buyer's market kind of thing. Whereas somewhere like Uruguay, which legalized cannabis before lots of places in the US, has gone a very different route of kind of, you can, you can only buy it in pharmacies. The amount of THC, which is what the sort of main, one of the main active compounds in cannabis, has to be capped at a certain percentage. You can't have very strong, very high THC cannabis for sale. And there's this kind of cut off between harm minimization and making a product that people will actually buy so they won't just carry on going to the illicit market and countries are kind of having to find that balance but the US has like gone really full on for sort of marketing um, very very high THC product but also things like sweets and cookies and edibles which are potentially really risky in terms of if if kids get hold of them and don't know what they are and think it's just a cookie and eat a whole packet of them and have to go to A&E and that kind of thing. So it's really, there's, there's sort of, there's not just one way to legalise a substance. And I think that's really interesting as well. Even here within, within the country. So in, in Scotland, if you're at the Edinburgh Festival, you can't buy alcohol from like an off licence or a supermarket after 10pm, I think it is. So there's mm -hmm. like, even, even within the country, there's sort of different sort of, um, different laws in different parts. It's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> oh, imagine being at the festival and not having any alcohol. Oh God. Um, uh, this is all. This is all fascinating. So, so what's your book called? Your... It's also called "Say Why to Drugs" because I'm not oh, very right. original. <laughs> no, you've got a brand, and you're yeah. and you and you're going for it. Stick into um, it, yeah. So uh, we heard that you were a fan of the band Goblin. I used to be in a Goblin covers band. Wow! <laughs> have you ever have you ever met them? Um, well, we we stopped when they reformed because it felt a bit weird. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, uh, Il Goblini was our name. Uh, I played keyboards. It's really difficult to play keyboards. So you were like you were like Cla Cla Simonetti. Claudio Simonetti. Yeah. yeah. I met Simonetti very briefly at a gig in Bristol um, a good few years ago now. He's he's quite something. He's like a sort of like a mad uncle. So he. he so there's two goblins going around at the moment. I don't know if you know this. There's Claudio yeah. Simonetti's goblin and then there's the, the rest of them. But his is mainly yeah. this, this band Daemonia and they're much more kind of double kick drum metal than, than the, sort of the, the, other, the other goblin. Um, Nat, when we went to see... You went to see Suspiria at the... Um, uh, oh, what's the name oh. of the, the chapel? Oh, you Union Chapel. I didn't go. So that was... You didn't go. So that had like the drums and stuff like that. Um, and that was like a rock band. But then who was playing at Deep Red? Deep Red was Claudio Simonetti as it well, was. right? Claudio Simonetti, yeah, we saw them. I don't know whether the other ones actually made it over to the UK. They might have done once, but like Simonetti's been here a few times. I, yeah, well, I think I've seen him like weirdly. I mean, without even trying, I've seen him like five or six times. <laughs> it's just I all added up over the years. With the Scala was the first time I saw them, and I think it was like the first time they'd been over. I was there. I became sort of a bit obsessed with them. Are we at the Scala one? We drove to Bristol and back for that gig. I met Stuart Lee at that gig. I shook him by the hand. Or no, I walked up to him about to shake him by the hand, and he was rolling his chewing gum about in his hand, and he put it back in his mouth to shake my hand. And yeah, amazing. Oh. <laughs> what a gig. <laughs> <laughs> But no, that's um, super exciting. And I really liked how kind of lo-fi it felt. And like there's, yeah. there's 
one of the guys in the band was setting up like a an overhead projector before the gig and things like that. It just felt really kind of small. Actually, and that that was the other one, wasn't it? That wasn't Simonetti. That was the rest of them. Yeah, that was the other ones. Yeah. yeah. I think so. so they, what was this? It was the first time. I think it was the first time they played. It was in the the, um, the Scala, and I remember because in my head. At the time, what's the Scala? What, what's the Scala? The, old, the, 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 it used to be the old cinema in King's Cross, but now it's, it's like the top of Grayson and Road. Oh, in London. Oh, and yeah. you drove up from Bristol. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And they just seemed so pleased to be there. And it was one of those things that, in my mind, there was only five people in the country that knew who they were. So even that they were playing there, I thought that's weird. That's not going to sell out. And I remember like going with a couple of my friends. And I just sort of couldn't believe everyone was there. And it felt like they couldn't believe we were all there as well. It's such an incredible kind of atmosphere. They just seemed delighted to be there. And it was amazing. Yeah, I really... But then they have, that, they have that video, don't they? That backing video of, uh, of the tens of thousands of uh, people. It's like an aerial shot. And it's just that it's this huge square of people. And they've all got their lighters out. And there's thousands and thousands of people. And then we were there with like 60 people watching <laughs> thousands of people projecting. We're just like, oh, we've, we're not enough for you. We haven't, we haven't done it. When we saw, um, so they did two nights at the Union Chapel. They did um, uh, Suspiria. They did the score. So me and Nat went to see Deep Red at the Barbican. It's one of the best cinematic experiences I've ever had where they there was an interval and then we watched the first half and then we uh, you know and that was incredible they played underneath the screen saw them at the Union Chapel do Suspiria and there was a queue that just went it like it literally wrapped right the way round down the stairs uh, down the side of the road until it went right round the back of the unit. it just went on it took like it took like 40 minutes to get everyone in and then the next day they just did greatest hits and it was like 20 people were there. It was just kind of like, so Suspiria was obviously, I think it's because the remake was out as well. So it has sort of like name recognition, but like, um, I'm true blue. I was there for both of them. You know? Yeah, so, I think I would have gone Suspiria's for the Suspiria's not even hit. my favourite. No, Profondo Rosso is up Profondo there. Rosso is absolutely <laughs> just fucking incredible. It's my, I, I would say, I mean, my top 10 changes, but I would say it's definitely like, in my top 20. I loved that film so much. Me too, me too. Yeah. One of my top, yeah, top 20 easily, I think. Of it's just such a great films. balance of, such a great balance of being a thriller and then it's got all of this sort of like romantic comedy stuff that's sort of like threaded in and he's such an asshole, but he's, <laughs> uh, he's such, he's like a lovable dickhead where he's just a male chauvinist and he's he's sort of like angry at the at the, at the um, cappuccino machine and you know he's just kind of like the cars are all small and he's really frustrated but he, yeah David Hemmings is just yeah it's, it's, it's such a good film what was and your... it's got an amazing twist don't spoil it don't spoil it for people what was your entry level Susie to to Goblin oh, um it probably was deep red you know um but I've, I've liked horror films from a really young age probably too young but for a couple of random things happened when I was a child that got me really into them one of them was I got I got a VHS of the railway children for Christmas one year and I put it in the machine and my parents were in a different room and the trailers were sort of 
quite grown up for the railway children. And then the film started and it was Nightmare on Elm Street. And someone had, <laughs> someone in the video shop was obviously like had been fired or something and they'd stuck the railway children's sticker on Nightmare on Elm Street, put it in the box. And I was really, really upset that my parents made me swap it for the, the railway children. <laughs> to be fair. I railway children is a great I film as well. Yeah. <laughs> And then the first time I was ever left home alone, my parents had gone for dinner with the next door neighbours. Just they were literally just next door. And um, oh, Night of the Living Dead was on TV, and so I was like, "Well, I'm going to watch it." And when they got home, every single light in the entire house was on, and I was like curled up as small <laughs> as I could get in my bed. Uh, but great film. Actually, I saw something amazing a couple of weeks, no, no, kind of a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks before lockdown. <laughs> um, I went to the theatre in Liverpool and it was this theatre company basically remaking live on the stage Night of the Living Dead along with the film. So there were like four, yes. four or five people in the cast. I think it's called Remix of the Living Dead or something yes, like that. Yes, yes. But it was my amazing. Friend, my friend went to see it. It was incredible. Yeah. So they had the actual film projected on one side of the of the sort of above the stage and then what they were filming on the other side so they were filming it as they were going along and projecting it and so they had like little dioramas so they could do some bits and then they were dressed a few of them were dressed as the same character so that all of them were always working at all times one of them was filming and then they were moving scenery and stuff it was just it was mind-boggling an absolute spectacle yeah i heard that, that was incredible rob rob kemp went to see it Oh yeah, yeah. So it's, it's great. We went to see another thing, which was the Night of the Living Dead um, play. Yes, but, we, um, <laughs> we don't. We don't talk about it because we because <laughs> it's called Fan Club. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and also Claudio Simonetti, famously responsible for Superman, the Superman song. <laughs> oh yeah, made famous in Psychoville more recently. Psychoville, yeah. but that must be why they used it, right? Because oh it's yeah, because they all love all that kind of stuff, don't they? Yeah, I yeah, met Lee Shearsmith at Latitude once. Robin Ince introduced me, and I was so sort of in awe, and I knew that we had so much in common, and I just couldn't say anything. I was like. Hi, and that was when Robin. In fact, it was because Robin Ince was doing his horror show at Latitude, and he, because he knew that I was in this Goblin covers band, he'd said to me, "Oh, can you do some music for it?" And the problem is, like, Goblin's music is so intricate that just one person by themselves, you can't really do it justice. So I'd said no, but then because I was backstage, um, he went, "Oh, you're here. You can just come and do something now," <laughs> and I, I. I was not expecting to do anything that night, so I, that was my night of drinking at Latitude. The other nights I was busy, so I decided that was my night. So I was more drunk than I intended, and I ended up going on stage and trying to get the crowd in this in the literary tent to all sing the Suspiria child refrain, <laughs> and then and then trying to split them in two and getting them to do um, Halloween, the John Carpenter Halloween. So getting half of them to do the kind of do 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 do, and then the other half to do the drone, and it really didn't work at all. But and you played John Carpenter fun. as well. I could, well, I could play Halloween. Um, we used to cover Halloween. We also used to cover. I don't know if you know Sports by Tim and Eric. That was in our set as well for some reason. <laughs> uh, there was no reason for it. That you would have been in a Suspiria covers band at a time when I wouldn't have known enough people to form a band to be able to perform them. So it's very impressive. It's very impressive. 
it was well, it was great because we only ever got booked by venues that had a strict no covers band policy and you could tell that half the people in the audience were like huge horror nerds and were just really like getting into it and also knew all of the goblin like studio albums as well that aren't soundtracks and that kind of thing and the other half were like would come up to us afterwards and go wow how do you write those songs wow. and so in the end we did actually start writing our own songs in the style of of goblin to go in the set as well and i don't i think lots of people probably couldn't tell the difference and were like oh what that's that from? so cool that's so cool you're probably the coolest guest we've ever had on i think so i think you're the best one um have you got have you got the game yeah, I've got the game. We're going to play a game now. The game. Oh, we're going to play a game. It's called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion. <laughs> you have to guess whether the next person, if I think they're better or worse, beginning with Robin Williams. But is Robbie Williams better or worse than Robin Williams? Worse. Worse is worse. Is Robbie Coltrane better or worse than Robbie Williams? Better. Better. Better, yeah, yeah. Much, much better. It's a low card. Is Margot Robbie better or worse than Robbie Coltrane? Better. I think worse. she's worse. Oh. Is Margot Kidder better or worse than Margot Robbie? Better. I don't. I don't know. Better, <laughs> I've better, lost faith. Better. better. Just say better. 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 Is Anne Hathaway better or worse than Margot Kidder? Worse. Better. Worse. Worse. Oh. Mm. Is Louis Theroux better or worse than Anne Hathaway? Better. 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 Is Julia Louis Dreyfus better or worse than Louis Theroux? Better. 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 Is Richard Dreyfus better or worse than Julia Louis Dreyfus? Better. Worse. I think he is worse. Yes. Oh wow! Is Julia Roberts better or worse than Richard Dreyfus? Better. 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 Is Richard Gere better or worse than Julia Roberts? Worse. 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 I think that's pretty good. Eight. That's a good score. I got nine. I got nine. <laughs> I got nine. Yes. But essentially, that is. Um, but God, thank you very much for coming on the show, Susie. Oh, thanks for having me. It's so much thanks, fun. Thanks, Susie. Yeah. So Lovely to meet you. The book is out now on all formats. It is. I suppose now you're probably likely to probably have to get it off a of Kindle or. I suppose you can get it mailed to you. Yeah, bookshops are still posting stuff out, but yeah, the um, ebook is currently reduced if you've got a Kindle, and I think the audiobook might be reduced as well. So that's tremendous. Yeah, Do you read involved. it? I read it. Is yes, it yep. it's me. See if you can spot the point where I got um, winter vomiting bug and had to have a day out after the studio. <laughs> <laughs> that's a little fun, fun little Easter egg for people. Is that when you're you're doing a chapter on some sort of? Uh, um, milk of magnesia or something <laughs> well i do have to there's a lot of bits in the book about if you take too much of this substance you may experience vomiting and i was like oh, okay <laughs> you didn't want to talk about it well, what we'll do now so that's out now and you can listen to the podcast say why to drugs as well they're all available presumably and yeah. we'll play out now with your with your song choice which is halls of sarah by nico case mm-hmm. 